Welcome to another episode of Empathic Futures Labs podcast, the show about human-focused futures for the world in which we live. I'm Chris. And I'm Christian again. I'm Coulter, coming back. Yeah. And Coulter is our uh, return special guest and maybe more frequent, at least for a, while, a little while. Maybe. Yeah. Exciting stuff. Okay. Super Bowl Sunday special. Yeah. Well, this will probably be released the week after Super Bowl Sunday because I'll, I'll release the one I edited last weekend tomorrow morning. So well, then maybe we should place our bets right now. <laughs> Who's going to win? <laughs> See who yeah. looks. All right. I, I guess I can't I not Tom. bet. I'm picking Tom, too. Uh, I think the best team will win. Wow. <laughs> Good times will be had by all. I don't Except, know. I don't know, I don't know about that second. Upset. Yeah, I don't know about that second part. Good times might not be had by them. I think being angry at football is a way of enjoying football. You know, like you gotta simulate your anger. Yeah. You know? Okay. Okay. I can buy that. That's probably true. Yeah, I suppose there's plenty of people in Los Angeles. If the if the Patriots win, will be very angry. Yeah. Or cool. maybe they just won't care because they're too distracted with everything else. Yeah, it could be that there's too. A big, there's a big segue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so today's topic. So I guess this is sort of a, a topic that has been on my mind a little bit recently, and, and that's why we're bringing it up. And so basically, recently I've been feeling like there's been a lot of information overload in my life. I think that's something that obviously is not a conversation that's like restricted to our podcast. We're like kind of coming in very late almost in this conversation i think a lot of people have talk about like too much information too much multitasking too much uh social media whatever uh but i think recently i've been feeling it a lot more lots of information just coming everywhere like i'll be i'll be watching an nba game on silent so the images are going in the background and i'll be reading my kindle um and maybe i'll have, like a candle going and it's making noise or i'll have my like music going and it's making noise and it's just like it's ridiculous and i can barely hear myself think so I, I don't know. I'm trying occasionally to like get out of that. And this morning, I, I felt like I did a really good job. I like I I went woke up, uh, wrote some words, ate a muffin, went to the coffee shop. Didn't really go on the internet at all. It was great. But what did you do at the coffee shop. I read Architectural Intelligences. I'm almost done. This book has oh, taken okay. forever. Uh, book. Yeah, I think I have like 15 pages left. We're not sponsored in any way by that book. No, it's just a good book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, but yeah, so that, that's the kind of where I wanted to go with this conversation, because I think, I think up until this point, we've been so like pro technology and talking about like, where is it going in the future and, and where can like, what opportunities are around, how can we take technology to the next level and, and make it sort of humane. But at the same time, there's almost like this removing technology or slowing down technology is also needed or humane in itself. Well, I can actually speak to that. I think this feeling of like having tons of distractions around you is pretty familiar. I think there's kind of, uh, you can say like there's kind of a stimulation bliss or maybe like satiation where you just have enough going and like you don't have to think so hard. It's like the room is full. You have like an ambience to it. Mm -hmm. But one thing that really changed my feelings about this like you know, putting music on and putting simulation on was I got the chance to have an hour in a sensory deprivation tank. Oh. Uh, I had a friend who moved to Madison and there's this wonderful tank spa therapy place called Float Madison. 
Wait, aren't you in Madison, Chris? No, I'm in Milwaukee. Oh, you're in Milwaukee, that's right. Yeah. So I'm absolutely yeah. sure every city has them. I've, yeah. been to, I've now been to tanks in Chicago and Madison. Yeah. Um, not cheap, but if you have someone on the inside, you can get a good deal. First time is usually cheap. And I'll get to it later, but I don't think you actually need the tank to do sensory deprivation. You can do it for very cheap at your house. So the way I put it is you like never know until you've done it what it's like to completely divorce yourself from your senses. Um, I had an interesting conversation with a graphic design professor uh, on our campus about how we end up identifying with the things in the world that push up against us. So think about like your butt in a seat. You feel the chair pushing up against your butt and you end up identifying with it. As well with the other senses, you identify with what you hear and what enters your eyeballs. But when you totally divorce yourself from those senses, like you feel your kind of existence, your eminence and your quality. And in a way, like after I got out of the tank, after an hour of just being totally on my own, I, I actually felt like my senses were heightened and everything felt a little bit like an attack on my autonomy as a person. So maybe it was it was a bit like, I don't know, I felt like I could see sensation as like kind of self, self-harm self a little bit, especially if you're just like overstimulating yourself to like, I don't know, calm yourself down. Nice. It's been more sensitive to like, okay, I don't want to put on stuff in the background. And obviously we don't have a float tank out here in Urbana, but I'll put in headphones and put on a blindfold or something and just for an hour lay down completely in the dark and, and try to like recenter myself. And I'm not new age, I'm not spiritual, but just in terms of resetting my sensitivity and you know what makes me comfortable, it's been... A really helpful practice yeah do you put on music when you put in your headphones like is that your like low-key cheap sensor deprivation to like put on a blindfold in a dark room uh i just put in ear uh, foam earplugs oh okay <laughs> earplugs okay okay yeah that so, makes sense yeah because there's a lot of times where i'm just like i've tried to do that with my nice headphones and like i'll lay in a chair but it's music and it's you know even if it's calming music it's still music right right that's that that's a pretty interesting point. I did something today that I don't think I've ever done before. Um, I'm going to share some of my hygiene habits. I, I listened to music while I was taking a shower, and I didn't like that. Yeah? It was too much, honestly. So obviously there's a certain amount of sensation that is comes. That, is that the first time you've done that? Music yeah. in the shower? Really? Yeah. I'd say I probably do it like half the time I'm in the shower. Yeah, no, I because there was a song that was in my head, and I was like, oh, I'll throw this on. And and so I have it on my phone, which which has a horrible sound quality. <laughs> and so that didn't help. And it's just like this metallic-y, bouncy sound. Yeah. A hollow, very hollow while I'm trying to take a shower, and it's, it just wasn't pleasant in any way. Yeah. And, which is not what I expected, I think, of that. Right. Uh, and I think that's, that's really tied... Uh, uh, to this to this whole discussion here when I wake up in the morning and I'm having a hard time getting out of bed I'll put on a podcast and in a way it feels like I'm distracting myself from like being in the moment and having to suffer from being really tired yeah. yeah I've always found that as soon as I like stop closing my eyes and I start to like look at things I'm like okay I'm awake so, yeah I think so one thing I've read a lot about recently and I think this is sort of how I've started to cope with uh, sensory overload why I've like this morning I sat down and did some writing for a while and just like thinking is because I think I've read a few times like especially in this off-screen magazine which I, I've really enjoyed about how like people keep saying oh we're like afraid to hear ourselves think or like afraid to like listen to our own thoughts for too long which 
for a little is, some ways it's kind of surprising to me because I, I kind of enjoy being in my own thoughts but at the same time like thinking about the last couple of weeks I've spent so much time just like endlessly scrolling through random stuff right like Twitter and then I'll go on Instagram and when I'm bored of that I'll scroll through LinkedIn and like eventually I'll run out of stuff to scroll on and I'll just scroll on the same thing again and again and it's like what am I doing but I don't know I I guess beyond the sensory deprivation like I've found writing just to some extent just like getting my own thoughts on paper and trying to understand myself to be like the best way to get out of it but again that's so hard to do so I don't know maybe I'll have to try this like put in earphones in dark room kind of thing yeah I think there's like when you're being productive if you're working through something like writing or drawing or sketching all these things like it's not about the senses it's about your brain's activity yeah and i think it's like the opposite of endlessly scrolling where you're always taking stuff in and you're just quieting your 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 brain yeah yeah i guess you're right you're like popping stuff out right you can't take stuff in it's production yeah instead of consumption at that point yeah you're just sticking things somewhere the other thing i found and i guess interested in your thoughts is like sitting at this coffee shop like yes there's all sorts of background noise and yes there's like music and people talking but I don't really find it distracting. It's just like weird kind of this noise that's noise, but it's, it's almost white noise, even though it's, it's something that actually has meaning to someone else. I've, I've found like it's the easiest way to work. I don't know what I agree with you. You know, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the more I think about it, I was trying to do some research, quote unquote. No, I was doing some background reading. We're not going to call it research uh, for this discussion today at the laundromat. And so this is a place where there is a reasonable amount of activity and things going on. People are talking, people are watching shows on their phone or whatever. And I found that I can focus much better there when I'm actively producing something and it becomes very, very difficult to read. Yeah. Uh, with And so maybe maybe that's a bit of a, of a counterpoint, but I think the thought is there is when I'm trying to consume something, all these other bits of consumption that are attacking uh, that that focus and attention, it, maybe it's harder to do that than it is uh, to silence those things while you're producing. Right, right. Yeah, I think for me, the cafe has two aspects. Um, one, it's slightly uncomfortable. Like, I can't scratch my butt in a cafe. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you're in a way restricting your own activities that That's you so focus true. better on what you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And that feeds right into the first thing about the cafe, which is it's a performance, right? You pay to be there. You, you pay to get permission to sit in the room by buying a cappuccino. And you're, you're following a kind of script where I'm the kind of person who, you know, works in the cafe. And I think that's why it drags a lot of people out of spaces of comfort and spaces of consumption. Uh-huh. It's, it's a way of enacting self-discipline mm. by entering a space that they're not quite comfortable with. And sometimes if a cafe is too nice and too comfortable and too accommodating, I can't work there. It's like the laundromat is a good example of a space where, you know, it, it feels a little bit like punishment, but it helps you draw out yeah. discipline. I've, yeah. I've found the laundromat as opposed to a cafe much more, much better for me to actually work in. Um, but and then that the idea of consumption is much more difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what are your thoughts on the office then? Because to a certain extent, there's a set of rules at an office. Um, and there's distractions. Right. right. That's why I hate the, like, why do, I can't speak to WeWork's efficacy, but I really hate the fun millennial office with slides and pool tables. Uh-huh. It's like, I think offices should be slightly unpleasant to be in. 
just to keep you focused and I don't know that's just I think like open plan I, I'm kind of like pro cubicle with like meeting room breakouts I think we're wandering a little bit too far away from the kind of ideal of the office and they're, they're trying to mix like play and productivity in weird right. ways that I think undermine both and if you're in this well, like single space that caters to both I think it, it's just hard to to even mentally switch from a productive mode into a play mode well that's I mean that's that's the trick is like because that's that's almost convinced because I think the idea is that you convince the people that it does not work it is it is play yeah like you're not here working you're not here um, laboring you're here you're here doing what you love to do yeah um, well so we we actually just got a ping pong table at the office uh, it, we had it for a while then we grew too big and then so I, I came when we were too big in our old office for the ping pong table and we recently expanded and finally brought it back and I don't know I haven't had the hardest time switching between work and play out the ping pong table it's not easy but like I've gone and played games and then sat down and after a couple minutes I'm like all right I'm ready to work again so like I don't know. I haven't had a huge problem with it, but I, I think you're right. It is. It's more distracting when p- other people are playing. You're like, oh, I want to go and hang out and hit a few balls as well. But so one thing that I was thinking about though is, for whatever reason, like our office environment is sort of. I guess I've been to your office too, Christian, where it's it, it's similar to that, where there's like it's not really cubicles, but everyone does have their own space, and and you're kind of right next to someone and. You know, there's some dividers, but it's also mostly open. You can hear a lot of what's going on. But I also, for whatever reason, have a harder time almost working there than I do at a coffee shop. Even though coffee shop, supposedly there's more distractions, there's more random conversation. Uh, it's a space where you're kind of sort of expected to work or be polite or be quiet, but you're not really expected to work in the same way that like an office is like, in some ways, kind of meant to be getting stuff done so i don't know what it is about that the thing about a coffee shop is like those distractions like other conversations aren't useful to you yeah they're not they're not important to you in any way and so to me i I would think like that's almost less distracting than a conversation in an office which might have an impact on you yeah that's a good point if you're like curious what other people are doing beyond aesthetics you have kind of you own a cubicle and then in a lot of newer environments, you have the hot desk. Right. Where you have the promise of a space to work. But again, like the coffee shop, you are like performing in that space. You don't own anything within it. Uh-huh. Or it's more of an imagination thing. Or, um, I don't know. Uh, you don't have your own space. Maybe you have a locker. Yeah. So are you thinking that's more productive to hot desk? In theory, because as opposed to like owning a space, because I guess I own, I do own the space at the office more or less. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously I'm, I own the space to the extent that I work there currently. And if I didn't work there, I wouldn't have the space anymore. But I mean, I, I put my own stuff up. Yeah, would that add a certain amount of comfort that would put you in a more consuming mood? Yes. Yeah, so one, I mean, obviously I haven't worked in an office for an extended period, so I can't speak with much experience, but the system that I was most attracted to is um, one I read about at Valve Software. They do digital content management, they make games, and they're really like uh, an advanced like post-Microsoft software company. Right. They have something called the Cabal system, where um, <laughs> they have like, a five-story or something office, and everyone has a desk, but the desk is on wheels, 
and they kind of the team sort of self-assemble grow and shrink within a free volume but the space does get divided up into a kind of mental model of the teams that work within it uh-huh. so you get some form of hotness and, and flexibility but you can kind of build yourself into kind of cranny or a cabal <laughs> it's kind of what kt had right or in theory yeah yeah i mean it really was and i'm trying to think what I mean, what that allowed was everyone that's working on the same project was able to be together in, in close proximity, you yeah. know, within 20, 25 feet of each other. Yeah. And the building was relatively huge. Like, you could fit you could fit a small urban Walmart in the thing. And, I, like, I don't know. Like, the thought that it's almost more distracting because side conversations that are going on that might be important or maybe pseudo-important to you grab your attention then you have to resolve that but maybe it's also good that you have greater you're more informed on the project and and different aspects of it that you're not immediately involved in yeah i I think you're right that this this kind of side conversation that immediately affects you is the most distracting or 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 even maybe not immediately affects you but has the potential to affect you because those i think are the definitely the conversations that i'm like kind of most interested in i'm like what are you working on? Could I also be working on that instead of what I'm doing now? Or like, what are you guys going to be doing? I'm kind of curious. Um, where it's like, it doesn't really affect me, but it does. Because I'm just right. a curious and human being. You're missing out at work. Well, that's the thing. Is like, if, if you have these teams and everything, and, and you sort of are acting socially with these, uh, like a ping pong table or whatever else, and you're actively building uh, friendships, more or less, then those side conversations evolve as well. They they develop into things that are much more socially related and are less tied to work. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe maybe people are actually more productive if yeah. they like the people they work with. I don't know. But, I mean, I, I have definitely experienced that in, in significant ways. Right. Because then you get into this, like, weird kind of halfway point where you're like, uh, should I be listening to this or should I put on my headphones, which in itself is distracting. I think, like, noise-canceling Bluetooth headphones were, like, the best thing to happen in my productivity since I started drinking coffee. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Wait, why is coffee tied to that? Um, cause or I'm, going to coffee shops? No, just, okay. like, drinking coffee and, like, go juice, basically. Okay. It's, like, basically an indulgence that is free of any sort of indulgence baggage, right? Right, It's like yeah. eating, like, a chocolate bar. I'm drinking coffee because I'm being productive. And I can buy <laughs> fancy, sugar-laden latte drinks because it makes me a better person so it's like you're able to consume it and enjoy every aspect of its consumption right there is a bit of baggage with the fancy stuff though like you should almost the the idea is you should be drinking black coffee if you're going to be productive austerity coffee yeah (laughs) that's what i drink should be you should be hurting yourself no i don't i actually like black coffee that's what i drink when i drink coffee i don't i don't put all the other stuff in there like if i'm drinking coffee I, i want to be able to like taste it and like know what I'm drinking. I like black coffee. I like sugar coffee, milk coffee, lattes. Like I want to have. I don't. I've never, never had the chocolate coffee. Where's the chocolate? Oh, never, never done that one. I haven't done that either. But anyway, to jump back to the Bluetooth headphones, I think it's both like it's a way of, of course, like it's a, it's a form of sensory deprivation for yourself because you're closing yourself off to your focus. Yeah, and you're also signaling to the other people around you, like, don't talk to me. Like, I've seen that as, like, I think I saw an image online. It was, like, a guy sitting in a desk with headphones, and he had, like, a big sign next to him that says, 
if the headphones are not are on, you're not talking to me. Mm-hmm. Because especially in, you know, if you're like a computer coder, you kind of, the way I conceptualize it is your head has like RAM in it and you have to like read a lot of text and kind of keep it all in your head at once. Right. So that's and that's a big segue. And that's yeah. what coders think of as getting into the zone is where you, you've loaded and remembered a hard, huge chunk of code in your head at once so you can diagnose. But once you break that, once you get out of the zone and once you have a conversation, you kind of lose it. Right. Yeah. And and so immediately segueing from that, I, I did watch uh, a couple of these TED Talk-like videos, but it wasn't TED Talk, so I'm cool. It's, it's okay. <laughs> apparently TED Talks are now like weird, weirdly ungood. Like it's not it's not a good thing anymore. Yeah, so I've, I've seen it's that. It's become memed. Yeah. Right? Self-flattery. Yeah. All yeah. right, so I was watching this TED Talk-like video with this guy named Nicholas Carr, who seems to be like a critic of some sort of, of the internet and, and has some understanding of the psychological effects that it has on our brains. Um, and he, he talks about these two different types of memories that, or memory capacities that people have in, in the case of RAM versus your hard drive. Um, and the capacity, he, he brings up the point about you have a certain capacity within your RAM, like your, your quick memory, right? The stuff that you're actively engaging with, with your intention and everything else. And that capacity is pretty small. Like maybe you can recall, he, he says like two or three things at a time that you can actively focus on. And the problem is, is when you're constantly turning those things over with, with a high frequency, constantly switching between uh, different tabs or different devices or, or different attention things. Like you're reading a book, then you overhear a conversation that may be of importance to you or whatever else. And then when you're constantly doing that, you lose any capacity to create connections between what you're supposed to be focusing on, which may be one point of focus for you at that moment and may have been taken over by something else, but you lose the capacity to focus on that one thing and then make a reasonable connection for that to like other aspects of your hard drive intelligence that would actually create reasonable connections and allow for creativity to happen. So this is the whole the whole notion of questioning whether or not the information overload that we have and our ability to quote unquote multitask and switch between things is problematic in the future going forward, or if we're just adapting to a new way of living. The, right. the, his argument is that it is problematic because you're reducing uh, the important types, you're reducing the amount of important types of brain functions that you do, which are sort of related to creativity and important connections between knowledge bases. Uh-huh. Long-winded point is that it, 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 it does seem to be problematic, at least uh, from people's perspective. And so then the question is like these, the content providers like Facebook, Twitter, etc. I, I like those people know that this occurs and that the websites are designed to keep people on them. But my point is, is like, I think they're also, those people are also like the people that are running these companies are also probably the best fit to fix the problems hmm. because it's motivated to do it. Well, yeah, they have no reason to do it. They shouldn't, uh, based on their business model, but they have all the information to fix it. They know, they know what they should do and they, they have the capacity. Like, our senators probably aren't the ones that have the best information regarding us. Like yeah. Mark Zuckerberg can give you a good uh, description. And then there was this video 
uh, from CBS Sunday Morning, I think, which was talking with a former Facebook engineer that invented the like button or co-invented <laughs> the like button. Uh -huh. And now, now, now what he's doing is he's working in a startup that focuses on workplace productivity because, because he has this critical perspective on what it's done and what the capacity is and what, what it was designed to do, yeah. what it wasn't designed to do. I guess, I guess, so I think it's funny now that we're on this tangent to like, or not tangent discussion that... And I was going to bring this up earlier, but then you kind of actually brought it up that it's funny that we kind of turn to this idea of the app to to mitigate our app overload. Like, it's kind of ironic. Um, well, yeah, definitely. And it's almost like, why are we why are we going for another app when we have too many apps or too many things that we pay attention to already? Uh, it's like, there's this idea, especially as I was reading this book, Winner Take All, that kept coming up over and over again of like, and, and this goes to your point about Facebook engineers fixing Facebook, that we constantly kind of turn to the same people who create problems to fix the problems. And it's like, do, do, can you disassemble the, uh, the, what was the quote? It was something about like disassembling a house with the tools that made them. To a certain extent, yeah, I think you're right that, uh, and this is maybe a completely different topic and more political that I, I don't necessarily blame Zuckerberg for everything. I, I, I think there's like, I think there's like, I think he's more of a symptom of like the, the terrible incentive structure that has been in place. Uh, you just exploit this. Right. Just exploit he, he, there. Exploiting what's there. I think there's a structural problem with, with how businesses are meant to make shareholders money rather than produce actual public good. So that that's my take on that. But it, it's almost like, why are we why are we turning to apps to solve a problem that apps created? And is there a way, how do we get technology to work, work better for us? Right? You know, apps are the cause of and solution to every one of our problems, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> that's what we're kind of <laughs> I mean, led to believe at this point. I, that's the thing. It's like, so there, I think that, Zuckerberg and the people like him are the people that should fix the problems and are most equipped to do so. I don't think they're the people that will fix the problems. Yeah. Well, I guess, do you want to differentiate between technically capable of fixing the problem and like structurally policy-wise should be leading the fix to the problems? Because I think, well, I think that's... Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's what I mean is not tech. I mean, sure. Yes, they are technically capable, but, and they have the knowledge. They understand why these occur. They, they understand where to make the exploits. Right. right. And so if you understand where to make the exploits, you can understand how to fix them. Yeah. You just need someone to force them to fix them. Yeah. Okay. But that's the thing is like Congress or whatever, isn't going to be nuanced enough. I mean, maybe, with given enough consultants and everything, but on their own, I don't think would be nuanced enough to issue the right legislation to do that properly without having like massive and stupid loopholes, right? Yeah. Well, you just need you just need smart people working for Congress. Well, I, I don't I don't think so necessarily. I think you need people with good ethics in Congress and people that they can consult that are smart enough in the specific okay. topics. Fair enough. Yeah. I just I I, I just think. At this point, it's it's misplaced to say that apps are going to solve everything, and we should oh, rely I, I, on the people I, who build the apps to solve it because they're not going to solve it. I think this is like maybe kind of a, an aspect of technology in total. I mean, like architecture was at one point seen as the problem and solution to everything. Yeah. Well, it was the solution then the problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that's that's the true trajectory for for the app 
sort of political app system where it's like at some point it's just like we're going to move on to like brain stimulation patches and that'll be the problem and solution everything and yeah. apps just be like in the background and no longer the instrument of political change or societal degradation or degradation right. i don't know i, I think that's a good point because there's kind of the saturation of oh you want to make money go build an app like, uh, it's almost memed at this point like to have yeah. to do that it's kind of sad so uh, with within this conversation you posted this article about this small vermont based yeah neighborhood social media thing right front porch there is a lot of great content in that article oh which, i agree um so that was a really good article and we should we will definitely have that in our show notes because it's, it's very much worth the read and it concludes fairly well too um but they i mean that digs in pretty deep to the whole notion of slow media yeah and yeah. I think that's a topic that we can transition to maybe a little bit right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this was something that we saw with like the idea of the clog magazine. Um, but their, their specific thing is they have this, um, this social media platform is called front porch. Yep. Front porch. Front porch. I, there's a third word. I don't remember. It was called front porch, something or another. And, Front porch forums, okay. Front porch forums. And, and what you do is there's like a separate forum for each small community or city within Vermont, and it's all aggregated within this this one web address, basically. Yeah. Um, and it allows users to post information, and it was important when there was some major flooding uh, based on some natural disaster, uh, I guess in 2011. Uh, it was Tropical Storm Irene. But... It, community members were able to coordinate with each other through this forum. What I thought was interesting about it was that I think each post has to go through some sort of approval process yeah. uh, to be posted on the forum. And what that basically does is it slows down the amount that people are able to post with to like one a day, basically. Hmm. And, and what that, what, what found, what they said that that did is it basically gets rid of any flame wars. Like you don't have people just, yelling at each other uh, over the forum consistently because you understand in the heat of you you have one idea in the heat of moment and then following that you understand like maybe their rationality of what you're right well yeah i think they said that like some of these posts will show up and then the moderator will take it down and kind of alert the person who posted it and they're like oh thank you for taking that down that that was a, a irrational like in the moment thing and i'd rather post something else Right. Yeah, I thought that was a really good idea. Um, the other thing is it's, it seems like it's super local and place-based, and it's like you have to post your address, and everyone knows the address of the person who posted something, which is right. kind of amazing. Uh, and it's sort of like this very, in um, what do you what do you say? Very um, intentional business decision to keep it small and, right. and not go after profits, but actually help the community. Well, it is a for-profit company. It is a for- point of saying that, but it, it seems like there are reasonable intentions to it. Yeah. Um, I would describe, I think the way I'm conceptualizing it now is it's definitely a premium social network. So I think of the general, like maybe ethos behind a social media platform like Twitter is more is more. So it's going to be trying to connect you to more people, more content all the time to make get you more and more engaged. Yeah. And they're going to monetize your engagement, like the yeah. amount of, by showing you ads, and what what differentiates premium from bargain, and here I'm saying like 
Twitter's a bargain free meat free service mm-hmm. is that premium is about less but better. Right. You know, and so you're not connected with the rest of the world. You can't post that much, but we can guarantee a higher quality of, of engagement. And yeah. that's sort of like this larger distinction between design and price. Yeah. Well, and that and they, what's really important is because it's location based is that there's a stronger likelihood that the stuff they're seeing is important to you, mm-hmm. uh, rather than thousands of things on Twitter and one may be relevant and and you can follow what you think might be relevant to people, but even you know majority of what they post may not be entirely relevant, right? Maybe so. I'm thinking of like Twitter where maybe I, I follow like some weird guy from. Japan, who like his work is really, really similar to what I do for very strange reasons uh, related to technology and art, what have you. And I would call that like super relevancy, where beyond time and space, you found like a kindred spirit, right? And that's what like the previous iteration of the internet was about was connecting people very far away from each other and creating these like weird super communities that are like very, very compatible with each other and their, and their interests or whatever. And I could okay. say this Vermont. Uh, social media platform is this Vermont, right? Yeah, yeah it's, Vermont. It's about like a lower yeah. level of of relevancy, or I guess it's like kind of quaint, but it's not super relevant to you. It's relevant yeah. to you in that it's local, but it doesn't extend beyond that. Right, but and because it's local, it's almost in some ways more relevant to you, just because it actually affects your everyday life and it's people that you potentially could see again or even once. Yeah, I think I think the questions about because what this does is it. It, it encourages some degree of self-policing based on physical social interactions. Mm-hmm. Whereas your interaction on Twitter and its relevancy is not tied to your physical social interaction with right. that person. Well, when I say super relevancy, uh, I'm, I'm making a, I didn't express this, but I think of like a Cheeto is a super food in the sense that it's sort of beyond what is natural. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And it, no, yeah, I understand. it makes you hungrier as you eat it. And I, I would say like Twitter's sense of relevancy is like a Cheeto. It's like, it's more than what you should expect. In oh, your yeah. Environment, and okay. that's why you get addicted to it. So yeah, maybe that's, that's what you're what saying. It. Yeah, I think that's kind of like this. It's almost like the low-hanging fruit of, of uh, social media and the internet. It's just produce as much stuff as possible and people will read it. And then now it's like, well, we've figured out that kind of sucks. And it's breaking breaking people and breaking connections. And it's like, how do we slow down and, and do something else? I like this idea of premium. I think it goes back to almost like books versus online articles or, or like really nicely done magazines versus online articles where it's like it feels good to read it. There's a lot less there, but it just feels good to read it. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that's something that is going to get explored over time as, as we go on and, and just do more premium social network stuff. Mm-hmm. I would say, and I want to transition into this other idea of premium and environment. So premium premium environment is, I think, one where everything that you're sensing, experiencing, and seeing has been curated. is curated. So it's got the stuff you want and none of the stuff you don't want. Mm-hmm. Right? So you go to like an upscale supermarket and it's not plastered in ads. Yeah. It's really like less stuff but higher quality. Yeah. And one thing I've been thinking about is what I think of as sort of a sensory assault. So try like looking at an ad or, or looking at a book cover and not reading it. Try looking at text and not recognizing what it's saying, right? We're so conditioned to 
recognize things that as soon as it's put in front of us, we're kind of forced to recognize it. Yeah. And I think in order to have a premium environment, you have to keep stuff that you recognize away from you. Um, so. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea. Continue. Oh, okay. Um, the other thing is, I think I remember, um, and that that follows into like what was the um, the Charles Moore group, this uh, California community planned community of like wood houses. The seaside? No. I think yeah, see something. Seaside is Maryland or Florida or whatever. Seaside Ranch or something. Yeah. Right. So try just do a Google search for Sea Ranch and see what the the kind of aesthetics of that project were. And it's it's about saying we're not going to have artificial colors. Um, we're not going to have advertisements. We're not going to have power lines. We're removing this stuff that takes over your brain that assaults your senses. I would say. Sea uh, Ranch is a premium environment, or yeah, that's been carefully designed with your senses in mind. Um, the muted colors. Um, there's no text on the buildings. They have these very abstract symbols, and so I think the sensation of the person in the environment is has been deeply considered on every level. Um, mm. And I would compare that with like, you know, walking down Green Street and being assaulted by advertisements and text and things that want your attention. Yeah, that's what I would call like a sensory assault, and I think the modern environment is sensory assault, right. recognition assault. They're using your your recognition and your cognition against you, and I think I remember seeing an article a while ago about you know form based codes for cities. There are certain cities that are looking at limiting the visual information and density in advertisements in the city physically. So that could mean all of your advertisements outside have to be in black and white. Or they can only use line art instead of depicting things with shadows. Yeah, and actually limit the bandwidth of information inside images to reduce the strain on the people who are forced to look at them, which yeah. I find is a very interesting idea for planned environments. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have no, I guess okay, uh, from a shallow perspective, I have I have no issue with color. I think you know, like you look at somewhere like uh, San Miguel at and it's like really nicely done color but i think that's sort of in the same vein as what you're talking about where it's like not in your face but i i like i really like this idea that you're talking about the signage because i think it's so true that you put up like these you could put up a target sign even and if it's just the just the two circles like it wouldn't be distracting it'd just be a like that's a great idea i think and i think you kind of see that in tech now where people are starting maybe it was always sort of there where it's like okay premium like spotify premium has no ads it's never going to just like break your flow um but hopefully i think we're getting to the point where people are almost willing to like step back and pay a little bit of money to just not have the crap right and the rich people they you know they buy houses out in the country to get away from it all right what are they getting away from yeah people overstimulating environments right it's right. it's interesting that that all has to be tied like the only way in which you can have this premium experience is is by consuming it hmm. like this you you have to buy into it you have to it's not it's not something that maybe in the city it's a little bit different right right well you're Talk you're buying it to keep it away because almost like the cost of all the non-premium stuff the cost is that you're getting bombarded with stuff versus right. the cost of premium stuff is money which might be a little better. So I guess my question then to that is is if you're if you're everything's like heavily curated like how do you know how, how do we decide what gets through the curation, right? I think you're kind of running into that with 
this is something I was thinking about earlier with like developments, uh, sidewalk labs now with their Keyside Toronto, they're talking about privacy and, and data that's useful to a smart city. And the public's like, well, Google's kind of this exploitative thing where they want our data to sell it. But to a certain extent, like a smart city needs data to, you know, be smart. But on the other hand, like, how do you decide what's not, what's useful and what's not useful? I think it's a similar problem here of like, if you're going to heavily curate something, someone has to do it. How do you know what's premium, what's not premium? How do you know when you're putting too much of information in an information bubble? I think if we could like solve that or get that down, that'd be great. Because then maybe we wouldn't be as over-assaulted with information. I think it definitely varies from person to person. And that's where brands can build an audience by appealing to whatever their sensibilities already are. So I think of like the Apple, Apple's whole branding and aesthetic, this Dieter Rams, Jonathan Ives thing, like the whole image and operation of their, their marketing is built around like, don't you feel like everything's too complex and like too many choices? Don't you just want a, like a guaranteed quality? And that's what we provide you. And you don't have to look at anything else. And if you look at Apple ads, that's like looking at, you know, refined architecture, refined spaces. Like they're very cautious mm -hmm. uh, and deliberate in how much information and what they call things and how stimulating their visual marketing materials are. Right. I think that's what communicates the experience that they're promising for their customers and why they're so popular, I think. Yeah. Well, and it's funny that to a certain extent, they're almost like the odd child out of like this this game where everyone's all about the information and they're still selling hardware. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why they're getting away with it to the extent right. that they, they can. They won't even refer to the technologies inside their phone as what they are. They'll give them easier, more intuitive names. Like instead of a high DPI, high resolution display, they'll call it a retina display. It becomes about the user, right? right. You don't, and then I, I was watching a video where they're explaining why Apple advertising is so different than everyone else. It's like, if you have a retina display, you're not itemizing, you're not giving customers the ability to directly compare your product with the competitor. And if Apple actually itemizes and quantifies what they put in the device, they only lose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because then people can say, well, the Samsung is this much less, and the specs say this versus this. And so if they can always build this promise of quality in the brand, and the customer basically believes that quality, then they win and they have nothing to gain from adding information to the marketing. Yeah, that's a good point. Jumping back to Sea Ranch, I wanted to mention I took this course on Japanese architecture uh -huh. and I learned about uh, like the big architect Taro Ando um, would build these like very, he called it defensive architecture, where in the 70s and 80s, he felt that the urban human is, is overstimulated and basically like, yeah, basically overstimulated and unhappy with the density and complexity and stimulation of the urban environment. And so his architecture was about creating these like walls and barriers between the city and creating this inner space within the city that was completely unencumbered by the stimulation of the city. So it's like a big concrete cube with a door. You walk inside and all it is is a giant skylight. You don't have windows out. It's quiet compared to the rest of the city. And the user's like escaping and entering this sort of more meditative environment. And I, I very much like that sort of architecture really appeals to me, where when I'm looking for a place, I really need to find a way to separate myself from the environment. That's so odd. And that's cool. But it's so odd to just like remove yourself from the world. It's, it's finding the premium within the within the bargain, right? 
Yeah. That's also why you get you like use Twitter, but you get a uh, ad blocker, right? Yeah. So you don't have to deal with the the stimulation of ads. Well, it's kind of funny because I actually do appreciate some of the Instagram ads. Twitter ads are terrible, but Instagram ads are pretty great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it says something about our society probably that I think it's weird that people want to shut themselves off with these defensive architecture versus kind of love it and enjoy it. I think, well, it's like hyper curated, right? We want for a particular sense, sensibility. So, but my question, my question is really about is, is that curation and reduction something that people really want? Or is that something that's a little bit more challenging? Because my thought is if you give people everything they want, it doesn't really work out all that great. Yeah, uh, and and then you just end up with overstimulation because because what we want, what we're addicted to, is more information. This frequency, it's it's something that we desire. The frequent over, you know, of uh, overturn of information that we just have constantly within our lives. So, what? Well, okay, so I think the word I would say overstimulation is a pretty powerful word, and then the uh, satiation is like another really powerful word. So. You come into the word satiation with the, the phrase semantic satiation, which is when you repeat a word a hundred times and you can no longer recognize what that thing is. And I think I think people are accumulating information and they'll put on the Super Bowl in the background without any audio in a way to satiate their senses so that it's not as sharp. Yeah. Feel the pain. Agree. Right? Agree. That's why I watch the NBA on silent. But why do you have the game on? Because I want to watch the game. Or I want to know what's going on. Or maybe in part because I have this idea that I like basketball. And I do like basketball. I do enjoy watching basketball. But I kind of don't want to sit there for two hours and watch just the game. It gets kind of boring. But I guess back to the point of what do people want. I don't know. Do people actually want that? The whole conversation, and maybe this is just a me thing, kind of stemmed from the fact that I don't want this anymore. So I guess, how much do people actually want this versus how much are they actually just addicted to it? Well, I think that's a critical self-awareness um, because being addicted and wanting it, I don't I don't think I would necessarily separate them. I don't know. I might. Like, I think there are people who are, who are like, addicted to alcohol but want to get out of it or, or addicted to cigarettes and want to stop, right? But they can't stop because they kind of want it, so but they kind of don't want it. So what was pointed out in this video... Uh, Nicholas Carr pointed out was like this the frequency of information and taking in a new bit of information actually has effect of re- releasing a little bit of dopamine within your brain yeah um, and so you, you you gain that physical addiction and desire and what I'll say is want right uh, but- for, for that whether or not you know like you know better or you should do differently yeah, I think okay. it's different but Physical want versus mental want, maybe, is the differentiator. Anyway, we, we interrupted your satiation train yeah. of thought. Oh, I was going to reply to, to say, I think our, us three and our identification with, uh, of our identification of premium environments, premium apps, and things like that, I think that comes out of uh, a kind of privilege where we've been educated to recognize these qualities and, and to identify when something is not respecting us or exploiting us. I think you need to have the privilege of the space to self-reflect. So what is, what is the idea that you you know you're missing out on something, basically. Right. Like if you if you are if you have a kind of poverty of experience, then you can't reflect as easily on 
the larger picture. Right, right, right. If, if, you, if you understand what that premium experience is, yeah. I'm, okay, I see. But, I mean, do we agree that's something that should be more or less democratized? Does it allow the general, does it allow more people to think more clearly and more effectively? Yeah, I think I go back to this this whole idea of like a nudge, you know, the nudge unit, whatever, the behavioral economics. Maybe maybe this ought to be an opt-in kind of deal or as opposed to an opt-out kind of deal, which it is now. Opt-out of overstimulation, right? So what does that look like in practice in terms of like Facebook or Twitter? I don't know. I think I that's... Think, yeah, I think the technology, the technologists, the people who run Twitter and Facebook have already kind of given up on the possibility of actually realizing... Uh, an information, non-exploitive information environment. They're just like, eh, it's a market. I'm not in control. Right. Well, I think that's, and I think that goes back to the point of why we can't expect them to f- figure this out. Right. Well, I mean, but uh, I kind of feel like we have to do a bit of a due diligence here. And like, is there is there a world in which Facebook and Twitter and Google or whatever can shift? To, to being more focused on, I mean, it's it's not just reducing ads, right? It's more than that. Right. What is, it's like what respecting is, people and, and, and respecting kind of what it is to be human in a way. Like yeah. our data is part of us. Our attention is part of us. Like our, it's all part of like the experience of being a human being. I don't know what that form looks like. No. Okay. So one thing I was thinking about, and maybe this is a discussion we can just pick up another time because we're, we're at pretty far into this one already uh, I was thinking about this morning and I and I was thinking about writing something up on it because I think there's a lot uh, to be said here but I, I mentioned earlier the sidewalk labs thing and how people are kind of up in arms about Google getting their own like physical city-based data and like knowing a lot about them as a person in a place and I was thinking I was wondering like we talk about software and we talk about like network effects and this how like when it comes to software, the marginal cost of producing one more thing is so low and it, it allows for this really rapid, quick expansion where like the bigger you are, the better you are. Um, and it kind of just balloons from there. But as soon as you start to turn some of this, like it's a low hanging fruit, right? And as soon as you start to go for some of the higher fruit, like this idea of bringing digital to physical and interacting with that, you, you kind of butt up against like people as real things and like, how do real people? How do re- how does like software become real, and how does it influence real people in like real situations? Uh, especially if you're like digging into this market of smart cities. So like, you almost have to like slow down and respect the community in the same way that architecture does, in, in that it like goes through design review committees and goes through policy committees and code rate committees and all that. So I wonder if as as tech kind of pushes into the real becomes like smart cities becomes like uber becomes like airbnb where they're like butting up against real physical objects this kind of slowdown that that inherently provides will kind of be the right way to knock this off right Mm -hmm. do people who design that every day like ourselves start to kind of have a bigger impact in that discussion just because we've kind of run with it before like we could design whatever the hell we want but it's going to get pushed back in community meetings and we're going to have to like, at least in some ways change what we're doing or slow down and think about what we're doing. Right. Well, I mean, that's yes. Like that, that's the Vermont example. Like you introduce a physical location and like you have to actually consider the people that you're talking to. Right. But I, I wonder like, 
and this is just me being hopeful because I want to butt myself into this conversation, but like, do people who design this stuff every day and who have like had a lot of education and being real and respecting people in the real world, like maybe this is an opportunity to get into this conversation and like pursue this idea of what is, what does tech look like in a slowed down world? I think in order to do that, you have to take to Twitter and make sure everyone knows that you think that hashtag future hashtag future tech. <laughs> hey, maybe, maybe slow, slow, low, local tech. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, like local. The, the important kind of leverage you have in, in making like good design, good environments, good experiences accessible is really a kind of market question of, you know, the premium will always be, you know, high margin, low volume. And the question is, how do you make good design, high volume, low margin? And that's, I, I think that's at the crux of why Facebook and Twitter are the way they are and why these like really nice social media platforms are restricted to very small locations that can float them or have someone who's willing to sacrifice, you know, income and money to, to make the, like this, that the center is the social media and it's for profit. But I imagine that it, it wouldn't scale necessarily unless it, it had this kind of competitive edge. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like right. Craigslist, right? Yeah. Craigslist is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that thing. <laughs> There's also some weird stuff on there. Yeah, true, but finding apartments, finding yeah. these goods. Yeah. I also think about, you know, in making good design accessible, like that's a big question for me. I think of IKEA as one I, I kind of a problematic interest in IKEA where it's like obviously it's it's making like high design, fresh design affordable, but it's kind of disposable. But yeah. in a way I think it realizes the kind of dream of the modern, you know, industrial high design society that, you know, the Eames were thinking of. Yeah. Hmm. And I think I am really interested in how, how you succeed at making something high volume. There's another, uh, I think it's a YouTuber, uh, which we might, I don't know if I can get put in the show notes. Yeah. He, he has a, he had a really interesting lecture at Autodesk. I think it was about trickle up design. (laughs) I like that. uh, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was trickle up. I think it was trickle up. Um, where he was talking about the efficacy of design, where it was like, okay, I could make this stool out of sustainable materials and sell it. There's got to be a huge markup, and you have to shift it or uh, ship it, which is of course embedding cost into it. Right. Or he could create a DIY project and put that information on YouTube. And he said when he took this design, which was like basically a concrete, you buy like a plastic bucket, you put concrete up, up, you put concrete into it, liquid concrete, you just stick wood poles into it yeah. and you like pull it out of a stool. You have a stool, right. He said when he posted this information online and makes this information accessible to people, his stool design is, has way more efficacy and was way more successful in terms of getting out there, you know, thousands of people made it than if he were to like create an Etsy store for it. Right. Yeah. That's cool. I like that idea. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. Trickle up design. All right. All right. Maybe we call it quits on this conversation. Yeah, maybe we want to wrap it up. Yeah, any closing remarks? I'll make sure to get this uh, lecture in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So send me that. This, like, premium slowness, I think that's a good point that we want to make drive home with this. Yeah. I think that's really really all I have. Okay. Yeah, good conversation, though, nonetheless. Good conversation. All right, well, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, We'll see you again soon, hopefully.
Alrighty. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. See ya.